Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. Welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which right now is four strong, which means Claire Zauke is with us. Claire is our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action. Good to see you, Claire. Thanks for having me back. And Rebecca Lynch is with us. Rebecca is with the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca. Good to be here, Matt. And Robert Craig. He is the director here at Citizen Action. Good to see you, Robert. Uh, good to see everyone. So we have a lot of things we need to talk about. Uh, it is 2020, so we're in a very busy election season, and we are going to talk a little bit first, though, about uh, what's been going on nationally around impeachment. We'll also talk about the president coming to town. There's some news uh, in the Democratic presidential primary, particularly around Warren and Sanders we're going to talk about. we got voter purge update and a number of other things. But let's get started first uh, nationally in talking about this historical moment, right, impeachment. And uh, Claire, you reminded me this morning as we came in, right, uh, it, is, it is historic. And uh, we had news this week. So essentially the House, right, has brought uh, impeachment to the Senate. And we're going we're gonna to have a trial, maybe, Claire? Yes, we absolutely will have a trial. It's sure? officially happening. Sure? <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting. Um, so folks who listen to the podcast might know that a public affairs commentary podcast that I listen to on a daily basis is The Daily by the New York Times. Um, and they um, did an episode this morning on this. And one of the things that they talked about that I hadn't um, realized because I was so busy thinking about what was happening in Wisconsin this week um, is that there was actually some new evidence that came to light this week um, around some text messages and emails from associates of Rudy Giuliani's that even Fine individuals. No, sure, sure. Um, that more closely tie um, President Trump to the um, like officially tie him to um, some of the actions about trying to investigate the Bidens in Ukraine and blah blah blah. Um, <clears throat> and and sort of Pelosi took the moment, I, I think rightfully so, because she's a boss, um, to say this is why like I thought more stuff might come out, and this is why I held on to the article of impeachment for a few days, or one of the reasons, um, but now we're ready to officially turn this over. Um, so she announced the, I think, seven legislators who will present the case to uh, the Senate, um, and of course the senators will act as the jurors in this trial. Um, and so I think it'll be really interesting to watch, watch this play out. It, it's only, I think, the third time in history that the Senate has actually convened for a trial in this way. It's going to be fascinating. So, uh, Rebecca goes to the Senate. Uh, ha do you think anything will change? Right. I agree with essentially what Clara said. This is interesting new news. Um, facts have not to this point seemed to change uh, anything on the Republican side. But uh, obviously, any thoughts on it uh, moving to the Senate? Well, the one of my first thoughts, just from a political angle, is that a number of our top-tier candidates for president are members of the U.S. Senate. And so it's being reported this morning that Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, along with Michael Bennett, who I don't usually think of, uh, are all suspending their campaigns, I think, while the yeah. impeachment is happening. And so there's a big question mark right now in terms of how long this is going to last. And part of the question mark relates to whether or not Mitch McConnell is going to allow folks to uh, call additional witnesses. And obviously, if there are additional witnesses, which you know are needed, I think, if you ask um, the Democratic leaders of the Senate and the House, uh, 
then it's going to take a little bit longer than if they're not. Um, and what one of the things that folks are looking at in terms of the timetable is the State of the Union, which is on, I think, February 4th. And, you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi has invited uh, President Trump to the State of the Union, as is our custom. And so, you know, is he going to be delivering his State of the Union while this impeachment trial is going on or will it have wrapped up by then? Oh, CNN. They're going to love this. Robert? Well, there were press reports earlier in the week that McConnell's having trouble holding uh, all the Republican senators he needs to prevent witnesses. And that uh, Nancy Pelosi's really brilliant move in holding back uh, the actual delivery of the articles has actually created time for more to come out. And it seems to be coming out every couple days. And now we have the Lev Parnas interview is the hottest right now. But the problem with a cover-up is, is that you have to keep information under wraps. And if they actually end up having witnesses uh, like John Bolton, then I'm not saying he's going to be impeached, but it becomes worse and worse for Republicans and more and more divisive. And if you have 10 Republican senators vote for impeachment, that's just going to be make, make it much more damaging than if they can make it a completely partisan uh, uh, vote. Yeah. I, if I could just say quickly, and I shouldn't have said suspend their campaigns, I mean pause, but you know what's really interesting is uh, where the public conversation is going. And we talked, I think, maybe it was only last week, so much about Iran, but as this, in the background of this presidential campaign, both the primary and the overall campaign against President Trump, there's also, not the soap opera, it's very serious, but like the other threads of conversation, whether it's impeachment, whether it's what's happening with Iran, whatever next scandal comes our way. And so there's opportunity in that, but there's also a lost opportunity to get people to focus on the election, the tasks at hand, maybe healthcare, whatever the issue of the day is that, you know, Democrats or people who are trying to defeat the incumbent want to push. And I think there's a real political danger here, on the one hand, this is a solemn constitutional important, right? Impeachment is beyond, beyond politics. <clears throat> That's quite the ring, Matt. I know. It's like very futuristic. I know, it's very cool. It's kind of cool, yeah. It's Senator Larson <laughs> bothering us. He should know we were cool. <laughs> Come on, Senator. All right, sorry, sorry I interrupted no, you. No, not at all. I'll wrap it up. Um, <laughs> So on the one hand, you know, incredibly important constitutional solemn duty, um, you know, this impeachment trial. On the other hand, you know, there are probably disadvantages politically for the Democrats to be moving forward with this. I think it's part of the reason why, as pundits say often, that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, waited so long to pursue impeachment until she had no choice. But this is where we're at. And, uh, you know, we're only a few weeks away from the Iowa caucuses, and this is all going to be happening in the background. It's going to be happening, and you can't. I'll say like Elizabeth Warren claim it's a, a solemn constitutional responsibility and then not treat it like one. So obviously you're not saying she should, but I'm just saying oh, that, totally. yeah. that this is w the way it, and we don't know. I mean, there's also reports that McConnell is going to restrict TV coverage. And so as we move towards proto-fascism, that will be that'll be a big controversy if he actually tries to do that. And yeah. and that's an even bigger deal because part of this is that the senators have to be there and they have to sit silently and they aren't allowed to have electronic devices with them. And so <gasps> it's not. And so it's yeah. So they're going to be in for they're, hours. They're going to go into like 
spasms, I think, probably. No. Yes, but also <laughs> for us, if the TV is coverage or whatnot is restricted, then it's not like we'll even be getting live streams or tweets or something happening from right. the floor of the Senate from senators, right? So so our access to information is also, will, will also be restricted um, even more severely if that's yeah, the look, case. Yeah, look, that's a great point. If this stuff isn't on TV, like, it largely doesn't happen. That's why they need to have these trials. But we're going to move on, and you brought up the election, and this does operate within the context of the election. And so um, people got their election grist here in Wisconsin as uh, the uh, the president came to town this week, visited Milwaukee, and uh, Claire, you brought up, he, um, he spread his good joy and uh, spread his charm and his endorsement uh, in the Wisconsin State Supreme Court race, which was very interesting. Uh, Dan Kelly uh, got a shout-out from the president. Uh, is this helpful? Well, <laughs> it's, it's helpful for me for us, to crystallize. Yes. <laughs> In case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, so, th- so um, Trump's exact words were, go vote for Justice Dan Kelly to defend the rule of law. There you go. So that is, so that's what Trump tweet. thinks Trump about our state Supreme Court race. He's known for his credibility on the rule of law. <laughs> yes, sure, exactly. sure, see impeachment. <laughs> yeah, so, but it's interesting. So, yeah, Trump comes to town, and it is worth reminding us, right, just how important the Supreme Court race is. I want to remind everybody, we did do interviews, candidate interviews, last week here at Citizen Action. We are asking our members and folks to go and uh, let us know your thoughts. Uh, those uh, We're doing a survey of members. We'll have a link to that on our website uh, with the podcast, and you can go uh, vote and let us know and what you think. That information me, will go to our board, just who is uh, considering and looking at this race. So we definitely want to hear your opinion. Let me just say that if we want to re-change re, re the sentence into go vote for Justice Daniel Kelly to defend the rule of conservative Republicans, then it would be a true statement. Mm-mm, fair point. So anyone, any other thoughts, though, about uh, the visit? And then I do want to dive into uh, Democratic presidential politics. Claire? Sure. I want to give a, a plug for our health care work here, um, yes. because the theme of Trump's visit was uh, promises made, promises kept. And, um, of course, we all know in general that is not true of um, a lot of what um, Donald Trump's promises were, um, unless they were that he was going to do a lot of the bad things that he's done, which I, I guess he say, has. I don't um, want him to keep but when, promises. But when but when we talk about the the things that he said he was going to prioritize that we maybe were interested in seeing what he would do, like lower prescription drug prices, um, he has certainly no. not kept any of those promises. No. Um, yeah, and so um, I, I want to make a plug to say that um, you know he talks a lot and specifically about um, things that he's trying to do to lower prescription drug prices. Um, to he he claims that he's the one who's saving pre-existing conditions um, protections, but really he's the one who's trying to overturn the ACA. The one whose um, um, lawyers and uh, Department of Justice um, are um, challenging the ACA in federal court. Um, he's only taking sort of half measures to make it seem like he's interested in lowering the cost of prescription drugs, um, but is really even, he's not taking on corporate power. He's not even really taking them. And if we if we do the same thing with rule of law, like reverse it, then that that would be the truth. So he's doing yeah. nothing about previous conditions yeah. and nothing about prescription drug price yeah. gouging. So well, we, we're not fooled. Well, the truth is we got to take a break, and we are definitely not fooled by Donald Trump. 
Um, we're going to take a break here. When we get back, we are going to talk a little bit about the presidential primary, and we'll jump into uh, the Marquette Law Poll. Robert, I know you're excited. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we went to break, we were talking about Trump being in town. Rebecca, I know you had some final thoughts. You know, the fact that, as you mentioned, Matt, President Trump came to town and the theme of his rally was, quote, promises made, promises kept. And, you know, it, it creates a really interesting challenge and it symbolizes a really interesting challenge that we have in this Democratic primary and then post-primary in the general election against Trump, which is, one, obviously the, quote, promises that were made that are things that people like around health care, around maybe, you know, their, their taxes, around infrastructure, around jobs. None of that has manifested. In fact, the opposite, a lot of damage has been done. But he also made a lot of promises that he has kept that are really damaging to our people, whether it's racist promises around what he's doing with our Latinx brothers and sisters at the border and in our communities, whether it's promises around criminal justice, whether it's promises around you know how we're going to treat our the Muslim community. And so it creates this interesting challenge where um, you know, we have to be able to talk about both and all things, right? We have to be able to talk about the fact that Trump is bad on a class basis across the country when it comes to jobs, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to, you know, inequality, and no matter what he says, and what he says are lies, and his record shows the opposite. But we also have to make sure that we are, like, with equal footing, talking about, like, the things that he has done openly that he's promised to do and he's fulfilled that have been harming people, particularly people of color in this country. It might be fair to say that he only kept his promises to our corporate overlords and to white nationalists. Does that cover it? Totally, totally. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, there, we have to both respond to how he is choosing to campaign that's, like, necessary. And also, we can't get sucked into only responding to the premise that he sets up, right? And his so, agenda. Then it's within his agenda frame. Exactly, exactly. Well, that... That's an excellent way to transition to what we are talking about right now uh, in the Democratic presidential debate. And um, I'll, I'll throw it right, right back to you, Rebecca, right, to just sort of highlight essentially what's happened this week, right, in terms of, let's say it, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are now engaging, and it was it played out in the debate, which was big news this week. If you engaging, huh? Enga hey, well, <laughs> no, and I mean today we record on Thursday. The CNN is released the the, the very clear audio and of of them talking after the debate, and there is real heat there, right? It, it's not it's not nothing, uh, Rebecca. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're going to talk, as you mentioned, about the Marquette poll in a little bit. And, yes. you know, I want to note, and I'll probably note it again, that that poll came out, uh, well, the poll was conducted before the latest poll in Iowa came out and before this debate, which I thought was a really great performance for both of the progressive candidates in the race. But obviously I'm biased, and in particular I think people generally thought that Senator Elizabeth Warren performed very well in this debate. So I think, you know, it's worth reminding that this is such a dynamic primary and things are going to keep going back and forth. A few weeks ago is Pete Buttigieg's moment to shine and now he's not shining quite as much anymore, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, the debate was one of the best debates we've had so far and that shouldn't be surprising. We had less people on the stage, which means you could have more substantive discussions. You know, Sands, Tulsi Gabbard and like other folks were able to like really get into some of these issues. I thought on the debate stage itself, 
Um, I know you mentioned the conversation that happened after the debate, but on the debate stage itself, I thought everyone kept to the issues and the task at hand. You know, obviously CNN and uh, debate moderators generally want that gotcha moment, and they tried to do that with both Senator Sander and Warren. And, you know, Senator Warren is like, Bernie's my friend. I'm not getting into a Bernie, but now I'm forced to talk about whether or not a woman could win, so let's talk about it. And I thought that that was so important because, you know, I spend so much time talking to Citizen Action members in particular, many of whom are women and Warren supporters who are themselves express concern as to whether or not a woman can win. And this is a conversation that we just, like, have to have right now. Um, and so it was nice that it happened out in the open, and I thought it was very effectively handled by Senator Warren. Um, so I, I will say that I um, have watched the clip of Senator Warren um, saying, you know, look at the men on this stage who collectively lost 10 campaigns and only the women have um, have won every election nice. they're in. Like, I've listened to that clip on repeat for maybe 10 minutes. And I was like, I was like, I was like crying. I was like, oh, oh, lady power. Oh. Yes. And so um, I am spoken as an undefeated candidate. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> you can't see I just flip my hair. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, so, but um, I, I totally agree with you, um, Rebecca, and I think that um, it is really important that uh, women believe in themselves as a voting block and as people who can win elections, um, and also people who deserve to fight for their power. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that Senator Warren fought for uh, her power and of her other fe uh, fellow female candidate, um, Amy Klobuchar. So... I haven't made a secret that I think at this point it's imperative that either Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders be the nominee, and I admire both of them, despite their somewhat different approaches. Uh, I'm really concerned about unity here because a complete blow-up between the two could actually make sure we do not have one of them as the nominee and therefore not a movement progressive candidate. And I hope the two of them who have been friends and have worked together a long time can fi figure this out and patch it up and have that conversation they talked about. Now to the issue, look, it's very thorny because there have been pundits and pollsters running around saying, and it, this is just based on polling, that there might be a 2% you know, gender penalty, particularly in these Midwest battleground states. And so that's out there. We don't know what, and it, so it's very important that was actually discussed on the stage. I agree entirely with Claire on that. Uh, and so, well, here's the, here's the thing. We do not know what happened in the meeting. I think conspiracy theories on both sides that I hear from supporters need to stop, that Elizabeth did this as some sort of sneak attack or, that, or the stuff about Bernie's scripts, et cetera, and we just need to understand that uh, that unity is critically important now, not only on the left, but eventually the whole Democratic Party. And that's partly why Elizabeth had a very strong debate performance. I don't know how the clip will play as far as the CNN soundbite of her saying that Bernie accused her of being a liar on national TV. It kind of was against her theme on the debate. Her theme in the debate was about unity, and it was about an a, a aspirational positive picture, which the left really needs to do better on. We're too much about the problem. And it's interesting and dangerous that she pivoted to a very different kind of approach than earlier in the campaign, which may or may not work out, but it's very interesting. 
Bernie Sanders, it is underestimated the extent to which his appeal is his incredible consistency. You get the same Bernie Sanders message over and over again, and that's part of his brand. It's the same thing. And it's interesting, Elizabeth has moved more, and that, that may hurt her or it may be a brilliant pivot. We don't know. I, there was a really great piece by um, uh, Rebecca Traster in New York Magazine that came out this week. She, she often writes really insightful stuff around gender and politics, and she wrote about this. And part of what she writes about is uh, Elizabeth, Senator Elizabeth Warren's experience when running for Senate. And one of the things that Senator Warren said at the time, and it repeats about that time, is that lots of folks told her a woman could not win. Uh, and, the w and the most hurtful of those were the friends who came to you and said, I'm your friend, I care about you, I care about winning the seat, you can't win. And I think it's something that we have to talk about as Citizen Action, we yep. make endorsements and we interview candidates and we think, well, can this person win? Certainly individuals, we're gonna be you know, weighing in now on the state Supreme Court race. And this is something that's in the back of our mind. And as I mentioned, even talking about the presidential race already with like you know fellow Citizen Action members, it's something that we're thinking about. It's so important that we beat Trump. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned kind of the pollsters running around, Robert. I thought one of the things that Senator Warren did really well in addressing this in, in the debate was talking about how we as the Democratic Party have always challenged those norms, whether it's that a Catholic couldn't win, whether that President Obama as a black American could not win. Um, and imagine if President Obama had not won, if he had just barely lost, people would be saying forever, we can't have a black president, right? And so anyway, I think she handled it very well, but it's something that we have to constantly in ourselves challenge and, and work on. Um, because it's it's not going away and it's pervasive and it's it's present in this race as it's present in every race. Yeah, I I actually at first wasn't sure that this was a big issue until I heard that clip because that actually tells me what Elizabeth really thinks. And I actually think if Bernie is a progressive and the progressive that I want to continue to to support, I would say I think he actually needs to talk with Elizabeth and settle this right. Like I actually think that's what a progressive would do, and not just say that's not what I meant, right? Like publicly, it's not what happens publicly; it's what happens privately that makes this go away. Because what we saw on the tape is that whatever he thinks, that's how she thinks, and how she, and and I do think it matters how she took it and what's being out there. And it, and there's no shame in burning me. Like, look, I'm I made a mistake. Maybe I sh I should not have said this, right? I'm wrong and go on right because um trying to defend in and defend like misrepresentation at this point you now know how she feels or, anyways or, uh, which i do think matters or talk about this is about supposed to be a personal relationship right oh we like each other right we're we're allies or talk about impact in other words yeah. they might have misunderstood each other but be very sorry that and say that that's not how he feels and if he conveyed that to her he apologizes right i, I would hope he'd behave like that because we will not win if we don't engage each other like that when he hears and finds out what the impact is that's real like okay i need to go talk we need to talk I'm i just sorry. wanted to add from a feminist perspective yeah. i'm like i really appreciate you saying that because a lot of times um as women the 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 responsibility of smoothing over waters falls to women because Right. Like we are socialized to be um, the peacemakers and to be the people who want to make everybody feel comfortable. And so when people say things like there needs to be unity, like said, that can feel sometimes like coded language for Elizabeth should just let this go. Yeah. I think it's the um, opposite. I think Bernie needs to deal with this, actually. Yeah. And, and, and so we're right. And so when I see something like, you know, she's you know, she's trying to call for unity um, on the debate stage. But then like she feels a certain way and that comes out with the clip. I'm like, yeah, because like women are told like you can't say what you can't be aggressive and say what you really think on the debate stage. So that's why I'm glad that she like 
stood up for herself and she's standing up for herself publicly and privately. And I think that we need to hold um, male candidates to the same to the same standard of creating um, peace and unity within the party. With that, we got to take a break. This was an excellent conversation. We will be back. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. If you just joined us, I would recommend you go back and listen to the beginning of the show. Uh, but we are going to move and talk to them about the Marquette poll, which you all know I just love talking to the Marquette poll because Robert just loves talking polls. Um, and I will start the discussion by reminding everybody about the margin of error and Huge. the limitation it's of, of the margin of error and a lot of this stuff. And I, and I think I'll start by just saying the overall highlights are very, very little has changed. There, has, there are some things happening, and I'd like us to talk about it, but fundamentally, almost everything has stayed within the margin of error. Um, Trump's not much has changed. He's maybe slightly more popular on a few issues and stuff, but the head-to-heads, if anything, uh, Biden, Sanders, the, all of the candidates, n- none of the numbers have fundamentally changed. Um, so with that, is there any anybody have any other thoughts uh, diving deeper into them? I there are particular one issues. sentence only. I'll leave it. The rest <laughs> declare and Rebecca. The top four contenders are all within the 6.3% gigantic (laughs) margin of error, meaning statistically it is a tie. And media running around saying Biden is leading or Warren is in fourth are being irresponsible. And it's it's irresponsible of Charles Franklin, the pollster, to allow them to do that. One one final thing, too. Um, It is also pointed out that 60% say they would change their first choice and 9% don't know. So like almost 70% are entirely fluid. Claire? Um, I agree with that. Um, uh, <laughs> I've also been thinking a lot about um, and uh, about uh, Pete Buttigieg and his sort of continued presence and and hanging in the top sort of four or five in a lot of these polls in different states and sort of why that is. And um, I I I think that. Um, this speaks a little bit to sort of the privilege of inexperience. Um, so oh, as, I like that. That's great. You. So, um, right, cause as somebody who is a mayor or a former mayor of a city that is smaller than uh, Milwaukee, um, that, um, you know, there isn't a whole lot of record there to challenge. And so it's really easy to attack long-term um um, elected officials or people with really strong, bold track records like Senators Warren, Sanders, Klobuchar, um, even yep. even you know Julian, former candidates Julian Castro and Cory Booker, who have these long and storied careers in public service, and whether or not you you know agree that they're a progressive or not, but you know are at least consummate public servants. Um, and and there's things you can point there and, and criticize and comment on, and that doesn't exist for somebody like Pete Buttigieg. And so I. I've been thinking a lot about like why why is he hanging in there and I think part of it is that he's you know relatively interesting um you know person um in in this race um but also I think I think the privilege of inexperience is a real is a real thing yeah and that's, th- that's at play here so I I think it's interesting uh it, in as much as what it doesn't tell us is what it does and I think it's similar in many ways to the latest Des Moines Register poll that came out in Iowa which came out after the respondents in this poll were polled. Um, and, and here are the similarities that I think are interesting. One, it's basically a dead heat. 
right? I mean, all these folks are within, and the Des Moines Register poll, they were all within the margin of error of each other. This one, they're like basically within the margin of error. I think that's really fascinating. Um, Second, Elizabeth Warren in both polls, again, not by a lot, within the margin of error, has the most second choice. Uh, support. I think that's really important when you look at such a dynamic primary like this as candidates come in and out, as people are trying to cobble together some kind of consensus. You know, she pitched herself in the last debate and has been saying on the campaign trail that she's the unity candidate. And I don't want to read too much into this because, again, it's not by much, right? These are all kind of a dead heat. But in both polls, she had a lot of second choice support. Another thing I want to know about the Democratic candidates before I get into President Trump, because there's a lot of polling on him too here, is that the favorability among all of them is in a dead heat among the top the top candidates, except for Pete Buttigieg. So like I agree with what Claire said, he's like up there um, in kind of like who if first choice candidates, he's like within the same pack as everyone else. But you look at favorability. Biden, Bernie, and Elizabeth are in the 60 percentile range. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is in 47. So I take that for what it's worth. I mean, I think what we saw in the Des Moines Register poll is that his bump from a couple weeks ago has gone down considerably. And so it's a dynamic race. People are going up and down, you know, every poll. But I think that's interesting. And and what will be interesting about Iowa is what happens in the caucuses on February 3rd. Obviously, second choice candidates there are a little bit more important than here, where in the caucus system, that is something that is important um, in precinct by precinct in terms of how people vote. But, you know, whatever happens in Iowa and these other early states are going to demonstrate to the overall electorate, including us in Wisconsin, who has momentum. So I think that's interesting. But what I really want to talk about is President Trump and a couple of things. One, what we've seen since they've been conducting this poll in January of 2019, if we just look back a year, is that his approval rating has gone up. And it is basically basically 50-50 with approval and disapproval. It's 48-49. With margin of error, it's 50-50. What we also see, unsurprisingly, is that Republicans almost entirely approve. Democrats almost entirely disapprove. This is the same as it's been, but like is important to think about when we think about November. And the last thing is that overall, not only has his job approval rating kind of inched up, but his handling of the economy rating has gone up and it is higher, it's 55% than disapproval of his handling of the economy, which is 42%. So anyway, these are just like some observations um, from this poll. I agree that there's there's a not, the headlines misrepresent what what the poll actually bears out. It really is just kind of a dead heat, um, wh- which it is everywhere. But I think that's interesting. And I, to, for me, the biggest takeaway is that President Trump continues to be a really strong incumbent and very strong in Wisconsin, no matter who the candidate is. I was just going to say, it, it should scare everyone that 48% of Wisconsinites, our fellow Badgers, approve of Trump as president and his uh, favorability, and that 37% think he did nothing wrong in Ukraine. It's just a scary fact. It's why we're at a very dangerous moment in our history. So it I, it just clearly shows that this state is what everybody thinks it is. It's, it's really tight and, very excitingly, that the presidential primary on the Democratic side remains tight, and there's a very good chance it will be hot and still in play when it gets here, right, and maybe all the way to the convention, which... 
which is uh, could be very fascinating. And and by the way, historic and a huge opportunity, right? It's not our lifetimes. These races are usually pretty sleepy. There might be uh, just a small handful of people competing. We we just talked about how many people are legitimately still in this election. One other quick remark is is that regard for government continues to decline in this poll, which shows the right wing approach, which is to create a complete food fight. Uh, it literally is aiding their ideology, which is to so discredit government, it can never really counterbalance the power of, of multinational corporations. So unfortunately, we, we have even a harder time using government for positive social and economic purposes when regard for government continues to tank in our state and in our country. With that, though, I want to, before we go to break, we want to give an update. We've talked a lot about what's been going on with the voter purge. And there was a significant amount of news this week. Um, But at the end, uh, essentially where we're at as of recording is the appeals court has put a stay on on the purge. It has also put a stay on the fines. And a stay on the (laughs) right-wing judge in Ozaki County. We haven't heard from him anymore. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually um, a good week for democracy. Um, It doesn't mean that this may not still happen, but it provides more time, right? Also more time to continue talking about how important it is to get registered and vote. And a a lot of people are being encouraged to check their registrations, right? Um, And it reminds us, right, you do need to register to vote. Um, So we're going to continue. First of all, shout out to the uh, folks on the election commission who stood up, right? Um, Our president, Mark Thompson, and Ann Jacobs have been, like, quite frankly, heroic in their leadership. And actually, like they said, they were being fined. personal fines <laughs> for their vote. Yeah, so... It's like finding half the legislature for something and not the other half based on their vote. It's really bizarrely undemocratic and gross. Also, want to thank all the activists and people who went to, and went to rallies and events and responded in real time. And I do think public pressure does matter. This notion that our courts are independent, nonpartisan, and sort of in a bubble is baloney, right? And I do think they do respond at some level. And this thing stunk from the beginning, and there seemed no reason for it. So we'll continue uh, to track this issue. But I wanted to give any of, the, any of you a chance. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention on that? Okay. So uh, even less regard for Foxconn and whether it's going to produce anything, any results. In the Marquette Bowl. Oh, yeah, you went back to the Marquette Bowl. still still pursuing the (laughs) Marquette By the way, this is great. Hey, I actually think this is exciting. Robert's dug into the Marquette Bowl. Usually it just gets tossed aside, so this is good. Uh, Yeah, Charles Franklin, maybe you and Robert need to sit down. You may have a a new intern. Um, With that, though, we are going to take a break. We're going to go to break a little early. When we get back, um, we're going to talk about uh, uh, an effort by... The Republicans in the Assembly to override a veto of the governors this week. Um, and it's really important because it relates to an issue that's critical, and that's caregiving and taking care of us, uh, which is a fundamental issue. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. We are going to talk a little bit about caregiving, and the reason we're going to talk about it is there was an important vote uh, in the Assembly on Wednesday this week. Uh, The Assembly Republicans, in an effort, quite frankly, to get Democrats fighting with each other and, of course, to embarrass the governor, um, unless their real goal is to just weaken the standards for already fairly low requirements to become a nurse's aide, 
uh, and become an aide who cares for people, whether it be in a nursing home or a number of other settings. Essentially, a lot of the folks who provide the care uh, for elderly, uh, disabled, other folks, you know, um, and the governor had vetoed this and very clearly laid out, right, like the idea that we would get rid of, I think it's like 72 hours. It's a fairly modest amount of hours that CNAs need no, to go that, to and that, there were that's other... That's the federal requirement and the state requirement is higher. It's more in the 125 range. Claire shit, there you not go. in your head. Yeah, yeah, it would be to reduce it to the federal. Right, so yeah. there you go. There, it's We're talking not about like somebody a huge amount of time. It It is some of the basics that's really critical to do some of the important things that go into providing care. And so this was just an effort, folks, let's be blunt, to flood the market, right? To increase the supply, churn and burn, and not actually an approach to to invest in the professionalism and caregivers. But this was vetoed, and, 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 and then the override attempt occurred this week, and it failed, right? And uh, that's really important. And just want to say there was a lot of effort, state fed and a lot of other folks, yeah, AFL-CIO, AFL number of other folks, patient groups, uh, ARP, uh, to, to get this, uh, make sure that this override failed. Claire, I know you have thoughts. I do. Um, and so you said this was an attempt to sort of flood the market with more folks. So I, I would say yes, but I think actually what it's an attempt to do is several things. Um, one, it is t- it is an attempt to um, devalue what is um, really important work. Two, is it an attempt to look like you, like Republicans are doing something meaningful on an issue that people care about without actually having to do anything meaningful. Um, And three, um, and actually a totally empty effort because it is reflective of a way that people um, uh, and increasingly uh, do not prefer to age, is what I'm trying to say. So um, so CNAs very often work in um, like nursing homes, for example, which are are super important um, facilities and really important jobs, but also um, increasingly people are preferring to age in place and age in their home. And um, so the work shortage that we have um, is for caregivers to work in nursing homes, yes, but it's also for caregivers to work in people's homes um, on... um, sort of a periodic basis, so maybe not every single day, but maybe having a caregiver come to your host, um, come to your home on a um, weekly or every other day type basis um, to help you out with things. Um, and that it's it's not always um, sort of medical care that people need um, help for. They may not need um, a, somebody with nurse, nursing skills. They may just need somebody to help them um, do their laundry or bathe. Um, mm-hmm. And those are, are care actions, not necessarily um, nursing actions. Um, and so, so this is sort of a, a red herring. Um, I think um, it, it was a way for legislators to make it seem like they were trying to, to solve the caregiving shortage, that they were trying to bring more people into the market um, to, to, to fill these needed jobs, um, but with, without actually having to address the issue, which is um, that these are, are jobs that need more respect, um, not less respect, that need more funding, more financial support, more benefits, um, not less. Um, and, and also that it's not just these jobs, it's this whole care sector that needs attention. Um, so so yes, I'm glad um, for, for the respect of this particular profession that this um, that this um, veto stood, um, but I also don't want us to get sucked into just talking about CNAs because the care issue is much, much greater. So I completely 
agree with Claire, and this even gets to something more fundamental. That is, uh, and it, it's Republicans, but it's also far too many Democrats. And it's the neoliberal idea that cheapening labor, undercutting labor standards somehow is good for us and creates more things, more access to goods, more access to services, where the problem is the opposite. And so there's a caregiver shortage. It's been identified by as a major crisis by the disability rights and senior major groups in the state, was brought up in the state budget and pushed, and frankly, neither side did nearly enough about it. And the, so their solution is, oh, if we reduce the training hours, more people will apply and we'll have more caregivers. Uh, when in fact, the problem is, this is caregiving in general is traditionally a profession done by women and done especially by women of color. And we devalue those professions and pay them poor wages, poverty wages, no health care, no paid leave. And the way to attract people into the profession and keep them there, and this is something that would create a lot of jobs in areas that, don't, that lack them, urban centers and in rural areas, is to actually pay them a $15 minimum wage, health care, paid leave, and to build the profession, which means not reducing the training, but increasing the training. And the major disability and senior groups and Citizen Action and SEIU all supported that in the last budget, and it went nowhere. And it's not only a, a moral thing, both for our seniors and people with disabilities and giving them uh, access to caregivers and high-quality caregivers, it's also a huge economic development tool. It's also a huge gender and racial discrimination and rights issue as well. So this is huge. And there were Democrats that were going to vote for this and change their votes and uh, they voted the first time and changed it. And thank goodness, but we need to make this a major push. One of the things that I thought was interesting about this is that it passed initially with bipartisan support. And, you know, I think Governor Evers um, should be recognized for what was like kind of like a masterful uh, feat of government uh, in that Democrats who initially voted for it actually switched their votes in order to prevent there being um, this veto override. And so I think that, you know, we should we should take a moment to just like look at that and applaud it. I think there isn't a lot to be super hopeful about when it comes to our legislature because it's an illegitimate legislature based on gerrymandering. Um, but in this instance, you know, we were able to prevent, you know, another kind of overturning of the will of the, the people. So. And this prevent a negative thing, but now there's a lot of positive things we need to do. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I've mentioned this before that one of my New Year's resolutions is to be more gracious and to give credit where credit's due. And I am so grateful for um, for Governor Evers doing the right thing here um, and his team for working with state legislators. So um, mad, mad props to you. Now we need, now he has a caregiver task force and it needs to come out with po strong, positive recommendations that actually start to improve this profession. So this is great, but it, it's, a, it's a first step to actually doing the proactive, bold things we need to do. I have a quick question for anyone on the panel. Are um, people aware what a census worker is going to be paid? It's over 20, isn't it? It's going to be like 18 something, 18, 20. I thought it was like 20 to 22. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very, it's so if we can pay census workers, which is important work, right? It just let's have a perspective about like what these folks do. And we're talking about way less money super critically important work that's only going to grow as we go forward. 
um, in terms of uh, relying on the importance of caregivers. Um, so this issue is fundamentally important. And again, um, Claire, we're going to be working on this as an organization intensively over the next couple of years and trying to elevate this. We actually need universal family care. We're, from the minute you're born until the minute you die, right, like that there is a better system that takes care of your care and also centers workers a, a, in that since they're so fundamental to providing it. So we're going to continue to talk more about this uh, going forward. Indeed. Um, but before we go, um, do want, uh, Robert, I know there was something you wanted to mention, and I know this is sort of jumping back, but it's related to the election and uh, President Trump. There was an article this week around Trump and uh, support amongst evangelicals. And I thought maybe before we, you could have the last minute and a half just to your thoughts on it and as it might relate to the discussion we've had about the election. And I'll just do a quick mention. Others could weigh in. There, the Guardian's been doing a series. This is one major article of, of several on uh, Trump support in Wisconsin and looking at counties that pivoted. He, the, the reporter was looking at Forest County in Northwest Wisconsin. And the title of the article says it all. People should look it up. Trump is like Jesus with white evangelicals. And white evangelical after white evangelical, including those who have been hurt by Trump or need health care or have needed food stamps and other services, feel like for, and, and know that he is personally unethical, are all like none of it matters because he is carrying out our agenda as far as th th their quote-unquote values agenda. Uh, and so this is very, very dangerous. They this get down to the point where it doesn't matter who he is, what he does, uh, as long as we get our little list. And I'll say something. Uh, maybe I'll get some feedback on this. Uh, the right wing invested in the fundamentalist movement in the 1920s because a lot of the progressive reform movement uh, was actually uh, uh, motivated by the no the idea that. Christian values were violated by industrial capitalism and the exploitation of people. And so we now have a, a brand of Christianity, it's only one brand of it, that actually will support anything a dictatorial figure like Trump does if he does our, if he imposes our moral agenda on everyone else through the federal government. And that is why 2020 is so important. And with that, though, we have got to go. And we want to thank Brian Woodridge, our producer, who makes this happen every week. You're listening to The Battleground, Wisconsin, with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We'll see you next week.